0: Hello and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, where we explore the future of the economy with Britain's leading entrepreneurs and me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor to the Prime Minister on business, technology and entrepreneurship. This is the last episode of series two of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We'll have a prime ministerial briefing coming next week before we launch a very exciting third series in August around the time when GCSEs and A-Levels are coming out. So please do consider sending to a friend, or if you have enjoyed the series, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. When you are working in politics, whether it be a by-election or some international trade trip, there was a golden rule that many of the team would live by. If there is food, eat it, as you don't know when the next opportunity to eat would arise. You'll have all seen the Matt Hancock video where he eats a street waffle just before going on to do an interview with Piers Morgan about the government's healthy eating strategy. I was literally once told on a trade trip in no uncertain terms to finish my cheese sandwich quicker as the Prime Minister of Japan was about to come around the corner. You can take the boy out of Derby but you can't take the Derby out of the boy as they say. My first interaction with a food company when I was at Downing Street was with Will Shu, the founder of then an up-and-coming food and beverage company called Deliveroo. Will explained how he had plans to take Deliveroo public and how he wanted to create a company that allowed more restaurateurs to become more enterprising. Will has obviously gone on to fulfil this mission by floating the company earlier this year. There has been a lot of commentary on Deliveroo's float in the last couple of months. There can be no doubt that the company was initially mispriced, and that is why its valuation is at around four billion, rather than the initial eight billion it was outlined for. However, it is still about 3.98 billion more than I have added to the UK economy. Well, listenership to this podcast is growing, after all. In that first meeting with Will, he talked about the concept of dark kitchens. A dark kitchen is where a restaurant has a kitchen, the other side of town, which means your food can be cut closer to your home. Will outlined how he believed this would allow small restaurateurs to be able to grow their market share and allow them to become more entrepreneurial. It's a concept at the time I hadn't come across, but is now common across London and becoming more so across the whole of the United Kingdom. Which brings us to today's guest, Salima Vallami, the founder and CEO of KBOX Global a company which is helping to bring in the next wave of innovation into the food delivery space by pioneering something called Host Kitchens. She has raised £18 from prominent venture capitalists like Balderton, and that makes Salima one of the most heavily backed female founders in the UK. Salima, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you. I wanted to start, we ask every guest on the second series what their route into the world of work was and what their impressions were of it when they started and how it has led to their fundamental view of the workplace. What was your first work experience or first job?
1: We'll talk a little bit about both because I think they're interesting. So my first real work experience was um, in between my graduating from my undergrad and going into my master's. So I'm Canadian, so I spent the summer in toronto and i did a two-month internship with a coding school that wanted to franchise the model so they i actually i joined to help them think about franchising and that meant building a business plan uh, researching franchise in quite great detail and then talking to potential franchisees just to understand the model and what we should put into the kind of franchise arrangement so That was really fascinating for somebody that had literally just graduated. And because it was a small business, I got to do a lot. So that was really interesting, got me excited about the world of franchising, which clearly I've done a lot of uh, since then. And then my first real paid job, ironically, I was given and accepted an offer to work in corporate finance with one of the big four accounting firms. And then I got a call from a recruiter who said, Look, you know, the head of corporate finance um, for a large investment bank has just left and is about to set up a vehicle to buy and acquire a whole bunch of textile manufacturing facilities in in the UK and is building quite a powerhouse. He's looking for a chief of staff, a young graduate. Would you be interested? So I said, yes, and met the guy who's legendary. And he took me on as his chief of staff. And I spent the next two years literally shadowing him. Which again, for a new graduate, is incredible and learned the ropes of corporate finance, uh, negotiation, deal making, strategizing, traveled the country, you know, learnt a lot about manufacturing as, as we're manufacturing companies. So fascinating work experience.
0: And that chief of staff role. As you say, it's something that's quite rare. I mean, it originates obviously in politics, my world, but it's becoming something more prevalent in business and startup world. You said there that it was a recruiter that got in touch with you about that. But what advice would you give to somebody doing a, a chief of staff role and, and how to possibly get one? I mean, is it something you're looking for at KBOX at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was looking for a chief of staff role. Uh, it's very hard to find that, that kind of person. And the reason is, is because first you give somebody the chief role, and suddenly everybody in the company gets nervous because a new chief's in town. And then it's somebody with three or four years of work experience, and then there's immense confusion. So there's pressure on others and pressure on that individual. It's a weird role because you want to be experienced enough to be able to handle a bunch of different projects. a chief of staff role. I don't know what it was in government, but in our world, it's really somebody that can be a project manager and project lead for things that the CEO doesn't have time for but they're important enough that they need attention. So it's a challenging role. It's hard because not only do you have to take on project work that is you know, core to the business and could be one day, we're growing into a new market. Can you do some research for me on that market? Or I need to do this kind of brand partnership. Can you look at that? To, oh, I need some work on our values and culture. You know, Can you start doing some project work on that? So it's so varied. And it can be challenging for people, so you need somebody with really broad-based communication and strategic skills. And so it's funny. Yes, it's it's becoming more prevalent in startup land, and more more and more people are taking on chief of staffs. And they and, and they really can vary. So that I'm just giving you a sense of you know what I was looking for. But for me, and I was pretty early into that role, you know, I was a recent graduate, but it is very tough because you're dealing with very big personalities, right? People that are running big companies that are super busy and expect you to be perfect and on top of things. So it's not an easy role, but it's a, it's a great, it's a great role.
0: I think that's an apt description of it. Probably the same in politics as well, eh? huge variety of skills required and often I would look at the chief of staff's job and think they've got a a tougher job than their principal sometimes because everyone expects to see the chief of staff as well whereas people understand the prime minister or chancellor of the exchequer is quite busy with lots of other pressures but they don't always think that quite the same chief of staff (laughs) We've, we've jumped slightly ahead but some of our listeners might have heard of the new phenomenon of dark kitchens but I reckon fewer would have heard of host kitchens in layman's terms i.e. myself, what's the difference between a dark kitchen and what you do at Kbox Global?
1: Yeah, so very, very simply, a dark kitchen is literally a kitchen that produces food for delivery and has no front of house. So you you, you have no customers dining in. So it's a pure delivery kitchen. And there's many different formats of that. There's It's such a, a loose term these days, it's thrown around quite a bit. But essentially, there's different models in dark kitchens. You could be a real estate player that's renting out kitchen space. You could be a kitchen that is producing food on behalf of other people's brands. So you're you're taking on another person's brands, licensing it into your kitchen, and then selling it with delivery. You could be creating your own brands. So there's, there's kind of lots of different formats. And where we differentiate ourselves is I was of the belief that dark kitchens were another competitive threat to the independent restaurant sector. So For me, uh, I I wanted to do something that would work with existing kitchens. So our model is work with a kitchen that exists and operates. So it could be running a fantastic Jamaican brand or a great little noodle brand, but it doesn't have enough revenue to survive um, or it has significant excess capacity in the kitchen. So it could be it's chefs or cooks could be doing other things. And so we add a layer of revenue above what the kitchen currently does through using our own brands and our own data and and technology to basically optimise that kitchen for delivery.
0: So in a way, if you were giving it a one line sort of description, would it be Airbnb for kitchens?
1: Yes, that's a really good way of describing it.
0: And uh, yeah, therefore allowing kitchens to be able to make the most of their, their assets. The routes entrepreneurs take to founding their business is one of the most interesting parts to this show. It's Can often be a problem that they have encountered along the way, or obviously a gap they saw in the in the market. What's the story of how K Box Global came into being?
1: Yeah, so exactly from a need that we had. So you know, when I left corporate finance and venture capital, I moved. I decided to jump into the restaurant business about ten years ago, and started opening restaurants around the world, and many at the high end. And then I decided that I love what Shake Shack and Five Guys were doing with burgers. And thought chicken would be next. So I launched a restaurant brand called Absurd Bird, which we grew to six units in the in the UK. But when we opened our first unit, about six months into it, we got three private equity offers. And I say that not out of hubris because we were just a chicken brand, um, nothing particularly unique, but we were just a bit funky, I guess, and a bit edgy. But I say it more because that just was symptomatic of what was happening in terms of so much private equity money was flowing into anyone that had a decent restaurant that, that they wanted to grow into a chain. And so Absurd Bird, kind of, we didn't take the money, but we were victims of what ensued, which was far too much capital flowing in, oversaturation in casual dining, high labor costs, high rent costs, high food costs ensued. And then uh, Uber Eats opens its, literally it opens its corporate a European office two doors down from our first restaurant, which meant we often had more bikes outside of our doors picking up delivery than people, customers in, eating inside. And so we had to just work significantly harder to get people in the door. And I was, you know, with my venture hat on and just the background, my unusual background into the restaurant space, I was getting offers to sit on boards of companies that were these dark kitchen companies. And so I said to myself, oh my God, you know, not only are billions of dollars being thrown into food delivery platforms like Deliveroo, but now there's this whole burgeoning nascent industry that's growing around that, which is going to add to the problem of oversaturation and not really help it. And so I tasked my team at Absurd Bird, we were a very small operating team, and I said, look, we're either going to die as a result, this was three years ago, as a result of delivery and all the oversaturation in this market, or we're going to progress and change our business model. And we, we spent eight weeks really diving in and reviewing and just focusing 100% on delivery. And we found when we focused and we understood what delivery meant that we could increase our revenues on delivery by 5 to 20% week on week, which, you know, without any marketing spend. And so there were lots of things like, you know, as a restaurant, you don't focus on getting your food out super fast. But if you're two minutes late to get food out to a delivery customer, you've lost that customer because of the way that the delivery platforms work. So we learned all of these things. We figured out a new way of doing business, which was how do you use the ingredients that you have in your kitchen and the the labor that you have? by understanding the data of who lives within a two mile radius of your, your, your space and then optimizing for that. So using your core ingredients and you know, creating new menus. So just a very quick example, a third of our menu is vegan at Absurd Bird. And we were able to, um, we were missing the vegan audience on delivery because they're not gonna go to a chicken shop to get vegan food. It's not your, your obvious thing. They're not searching for you on the delivery platforms. And so we launched a vegan chicken delivery brand uh, and it didn't cannibalize our existing brand. In fact, added revenue. We didn't have to add any complexity to the kitchen. We just embellished the menu with more sauces. And we did that two or three times with different things that were already in our menu and launched these brands. And we really built a business model on, well, it's not just about the brand, it's about the data. It's about well, what technology would you need to do this to scale it? So KBOX was really born out of a pain point that we felt. We then helped other operators with the same pain points. It worked for them too. And that's when, when I guess we got the attention of venture capital money and realized that you know, it works for us. It's worked for a few other operators that we've helped. Uh, we could build this into a much bigger model.
0: And what was that process like of leaving you know, as you've outlined, a successful job in corporate finance, chief of staff, interesting role you know going from that to start a chicken shop is quite a, a big departure, even if you're going to do it at scale and so on. I have always thought one of the things that needs to be changed in the in the u k is the way that fish and chips are done in in cities isn't very good, so I've always had this idea at the. At the back of my head about it, but it's fascinating to hear how you went and did it and took that leap as well. Because a lot of the people that listen to this show are, are considering career changes, and that looks from the outset the way you tell that story a, a big gamble. But it's interesting because it, it wasn't the first iteration of what you did necessarily, which will end up being the big success.
1: Yeah, so I didn't jump from investment advisory and corporate finance into a chicken shop. So I, I was, you know, working with some of the biggest lifestyle restaurant brands in the world that were getting outsized evaluations when we were advising them. And so I recognized that food and beverage has the potential to get tech multiples, you know, a decade ago. And well well before a lot of people, now food is hot, right? And restaurant technology is hot and, and brands are hot. But back then it wasn't. So I recognized it very early on, made my first investment in a brand in New York, grew that and repeated that success with a few other brands. And then I actually cheekily when I launched Observed Bird, I said, I want to create something that would compete with KFC because nobody's touched KFC and McDonald's, right? It was kind of <laughs> foolish of me, but ironically, it took us four years to get six locations for Absurd Bird. It then took me two months to get 100 locations for Observed Bird through the model that we developed. So, yes, it, it's an unusual journey, but I think... Honestly, I believe, and this is something that I always say to people that I'm mentoring, which is you've got to keep your ears and eyes open and connect the dots because being successful in business is about just understanding what's going on, not just in your own industry, but in adjacent industries and in and, and macroeconomically. People say, God, it was the right time and the right place. And yes, there's a lot of luck that goes with it, but we didn't build this business in anticipation of COVID. COVID happened to us. And this was built because the casual dining industry in the UK and in many other countries is a completely broken industry and it needs to be fixed and it hasn't changed in 50 years. And it's now going through a massive change as a result of the pandemic, but it should have gone through that change a while back.
0: I totally agree. As you've outlined, you're very focused on the technology that goes into KBOX and that being one of your key differentiators. It's interesting that a number of people have come on the show, Anne Bowden, who created Starling Bank, and Hayden Wood at Bulb. And they both emphasize that you don't necessarily need a, a financial services background to work at Starling, and you don't necessarily need an energy background to work at Bulb. In fact, almost both of them kind of encourage that side of it. When it comes to the space that you're in, can you talk us through some of the technology roles that you're looking to hire at KBOX?
1: Absolutely. Um, I would make one distinction from the the two of them, which is I do think to be successful in the food tech industry, you should have some level of background in food because it really does take a deep understanding of what the problems and issues are in the industry. From a tech perspective, look, we've got engineers and coders and data scientists and data architects. So we we have a really deep team. I mean, it's so wide and so varied in terms of kind of the the people that we hire into our tech team.
0: What's the kind of culture like when it comes to KBOX? Because obviously you've got a huge amount of experience Yourself and and what are the attributes that you're looking for from people across all roles in the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, our business is so varied. It's you know we've got Michelin star chefs, we've got engineers, we've got digital chefs, we've got influencer strategy people, marketing people. I mean, it's so diverse. So the one thing that I've said is super important for me. I hire for ethics first. So obviously, skills have to be there before you hire somebody, but I hire for ethics, and ethics for me means people that help each other, that are all rowing in the same direction. You don't want any heroes. You want people that really come together and, and work together as a team. And in a startup, it's absolute chaos. Um, you know, Everyone looks at a startup and thinks about funding rounds and, and how things seem to be going smoothly from the outside. But we are every day literally pivoting, A-B testing things, throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks. And in order to survive or in thrive in an environment like that, you need to to embrace change, you need to embrace quick learning and quick failing, right? Because the worst thing you want to do is not be good at something and figure it out, you know, a year later. So I really hire for people that understand the kind of environment that, you know, we've hired people from big corporates and they've not survived because it changes so fast. It's literally everybody rolls their sleeves up, you know, I'll one day be doing a sales call and the next day, you know, in the kitchen tasting food with a chef and the next day sitting with my product team looking at, you know, what new features that we can add to thinking about data and, you know, how data is going to help us. And everybody has to just have that mindset of we're chopping and changing so fast that nothing should be something that you don't want to get involved with, right? You want to get involved with whatever you need to in order for for
0: the company to move forward. And how can you test for that? Because I'm sure it's a skill that everyone would sort of put on their CV and say that they're a team player, but how can you drill down to that in interview and what processes do you go through to find that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's super hard and we've made mistakes. One of the things that you know our our VC backers have said to us, higher slow, higher fast, which is the startup mentality, it's not great. We take a long time. So you know at least six people in the company have to have interviewed somebody and have to have asked questions um, from all different angles and after every interview notes are sent out if there's question marks and the next person will ask you know questions from a different angle to figure out um, so it's a very lengthy process even for very junior people that are coming in yeah I think the easiest way to avoid or kind of make sure that you're getting hire from scale-ups you know we try now and hire for people that have actually worked in places that have done this before you can talk about this and you can talk about the chaos but you don't really believe it or understand it until you've been in that environment so we we make it quite deliberate to, to try and hire people that have at least experienced that in some shape or form
0: yeah that's a good way of doing it you know joining that scale-up can be quite a tricky path for people and and finding you know where these jobs are as well i mean partly why why I created this show actually, because it's there are these amazing companies like yourself out there that are growing and are hiring for new roles all the time. And I think it's particularly interesting there you talk about your know, kind of social influencer strategy and, and having that side of it. And that is just a job that wouldn't have existed five years ago, possibly even shorter than that. I mean, are there any other roles that you're hiring for that you think, yeah, in your kind of experience of a career, gosh, I never thought when I set out, I'd be hiring for this kind of role.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, we're just thinking now about bringing on a cybersecurity specialist. I mean, who would have thought when I launched into the restaurant that I would even think about that. Wow. Honestly, the, the term digital chef didn't exist until about a year ago. I think when my, one of my teams said, we need a cybersecurity specialist, that that was when I was like, whoa. <laughs> This is beyond anything that I ever thought we'd hire.
0: Just explain it: what a digital chef is in a couple of sentences.
1: I asked exactly the same question to my team. When they to <laughs> chef. It's somebody that's actually been a chef. I mean, it doesn't what really it says on the packet. It's somebody that's been a chef, so that's worked in the kitchen, knows the ins and outs of cooking, loves food, is passionate about food, but has since transitioned into actually talking about it online, so building a social profile, being on YouTube, Getting a following, so somebody that has the skill sets and has authenticity in the food, but also is about projecting that food and building an audience and and conveying their passion about food to that audience.
0: Yeah, it's so true that, and it's I see that there is often a bit of disparaging nature about you know a third of youngsters now want to be an influencer, and this is you know actually something I talked about with Ben Francis of Gymshark, which is coming out in in a few weeks. But yeah, he was saying that it's just such a big area and these that is a business that has built itself off social media influences a huge amount of it or certainly gave it the initial spur and he said made the point that these people have authority on things and you know it can look like you know to older generations it doesn't necessarily seem like a a real job almost but actually understanding this and understanding what works on on social media because it's such a big part of the marketing strategy now for a scale-up company
1: I have to say, I mean, I am astounded by what these young influencers are able to do. I mean, I know there's a massive mental health issue in the influencer world because of the pressure on these kids when they start so early. And we're working with it. We're beginning to co create brands with quite significant influencers. These kids can sell, they're mainly kids, by the way, um, but they can sell out products within seconds when they put their name to it. And it's very different because even traditional celebrities, right? So musicians with 100 million followers, are using influencers to help market their music, which fascinated me. And that's because an influencer, a traditional celebrity, has a little bit of a an unapproachable factor to them, right? You, you kind of put them on a pedestal, you'll never meet them. The influencers, though, have a very close, it's like your best friend for these this generation. So they have a very close relation, or they feel like they have a very close relationship and therefore they trust them. And so when they recommend something, they're more inclined to follow their influencer than even a major you know, international touring rock star. And that's the bit that I was shocked about. And, you know, I'm learning that some of the best-selling books in the UK have been by influencers or sh- shadow written for influencers. So, and it's only getting bigger, you know, it's it's getting larger and larger and larger. And and it is for many, and for us in particular in food, it's another kind of way to get to a new audience um, That's that's very sticky.
0: I completely agree. And when it comes to hospitality jobs, it's obviously something that's been a, Big problem with the pandemic over the last 18 months or so. How do you think as we move towards a delivery first world, you know, shoe of Delivery talks about how we've seen two to three years of innovation probably take place in the space of, of one. Do you see hospitality jobs increasing as a result of the delivery first world that you're doing? Because by all accounts at the moment, you sort of read the newspapers and so on. Actually, the hospitality industry is short of people.
1: Yeah. It's actually a massive issue. I think what you're seeing is you're certainly seeing an increase in demand for hospitality staff, but that's as a result of other things like brexit and and the pandemic and and a lot of the staff pool that we would normally dip into have now decided to go back home to their various countries in Europe. But beyond that, I think you're seeing a, a slight shift in skill set as well. and and I think what's exciting, about what we're doing is we're upskilling a labor force that literally would work up from a busboy, you know, cleaning dishes, you know, with grand ambitions to be a chef. And we are able to accelerate that because of the technology and the training tools. And we've invested very heavily in our kind of chef-in-the-pocket training tool, upskill and train people that don't necessarily have chef skills because they didn't have the money to go to, to a chef's, you know, to hospitality school. We're able to train and upskill within days as opposed to months and constantly upgrade and reskill because the whole point of what we do is we're constantly partners with the kitchen. But not only that, I mean, my first employee in Absurd Bird was somebody that ran a pub and he was a you know traditional pub manager, uh, one of the better ones in London. And he is now and he, he just loved tech and before Kbox was even a vision of mine, this was in the absurd bird days. And today he sits as one of our lead product managers and he's moved into the tech team and his marketability and his his salary profile has literally doubled or tripled as a result of of migrating from being a bar operator into product manager. So I think you're now giving an entirely different skill set and opportunity to somebody that literally, you know, joined a pub as their first job um, or a kitchen as their first job, so I, th- I think at least in what we're doing at K Box, I'm excited about the opportunity for new skills and new learnings. But I think in the in the wider hospitality space, you're certainly going to need a lot more back of house and, and, and cooks and chefs, and so that's definitely increased.
0: And what would your counsel be to those people that are in the hospitality industry that are? are thinking of of moving. And I say counsel rather than advice, because I always think advice is a bit of a loaded term and, and comes from our own experiences. But that is such an interesting story that you say there about how somebody has been able to transition. Understandably, they've, they've had a few chunks along the way in terms of getting to meet you and so on and, and be part of that journey. Like you said, that career ladder, that career step of kind of going from shelf stacker to store manager to area manager, you know, eventually through to boardroom and so on, like has been broken by the kind of modern world. We can have a whole separate debate about whether that's whether that's good or bad. But you know, careers have become much more. You know, Sarah Ellis talks about this. You know, become much more squiggly in the way that they are, and that for me is gets the essence of this podcast a lot. Is that there's more opportunity. It's never been more exciting. But in a way, it's never been harder to navigate and work it out. And if you don't have those skills and understanding of the broader economy, it's very difficult to, to sometimes appreciate that and work it to your advantage. So I'd love to know your counsel for somebody that's working in the hospitality industry that's, that's looking to move across to a more tech-focused role, because that is inevitably where the economy is going.
1: Yeah, and by the way, I have a, a couple of other stories like that in the business, and I and I think that the very distinctive and unique commonality between these individuals is uh, a couple of things. One is ambition, me, and I don't mean ambition in a negative way, but willing to do anything and everything, wanting to learn. Being curious—that's so important because you get recognised for that. And with the three people in my company that have transitioned from pure hospitality, or being a chef, or being a, a pub operator, it's—they've really, literally. I mean, I, some of them are working until two in the morning just because they love it and are learning a new skill. So it's taking the initiative to learn about the business in, in a wider sense. The second thing is, you know, I was told this by my father from a very early age. Read as widely as possible because it is about connecting the dots. And I think that's so critical. And not enough people in our industry do that because, you know, they're working all hours, they don't have the time. But read a lot, read business, read business news press, read everything. And that's what I would do. I would devour everything that I could find. So I think those are two really important things. And don't be afraid to apply for a job that you don't think you're qualified for because. I've met people that have come to us, and by the time they've gotten to me, I've identified something, and then that something about their nature or their character or their personality that's has such drive and ambition and curiosity that I've taken them on, even though they didn't necessarily have the exact skill set that I was looking for. So, I think it's you know take initiative is, is is really
0: important. I think that's so true, particularly sometimes when younger generations feel more risk averse and are prescribed as that. Taking risk, taking initiative, there's a fine line between it. You talk about business books there, and it's one of the questions that we ask all the entrepreneurs. We normally save it to the end, but seeing as you talked about it so much there, business books, are there any that you've particularly read that were formative for you that you would recommend reading to someone?
1: It's really funny. I've always read business books. So, I, you know, the Walter Isaacson Steve Jobs book has always been a favorite. I think. For me, the one that I keep going back to is how to win friends and influence people because I do think it's very simple and very basic. And really what business boils down to is communication and understanding your audience and who you're talking to and being able to influence the other person. So for me, that book has just, I mean, it's a timeless classic. So for me, that, this book that I keep coming back to and the other one, it's not really a business book, but I think it's become so important in my life today is I'm reading a lot about stoicism. And I know a lot of founders are reading a lot about stoicism. It's just because when you get into the world of startup and being a founder, mm. everyone tells you about how tough it is. Nobody can really explain to it to you until you've been in it. And so keeping a level head, being resilient, not letting um, outside distractions or you know competitor raising bigger round than you or you know something not working. I think it's so important to understand that there's no failed businesses, there's failed founders, and founders fail on on a mental level. And by the way, we're all I mean, I, I can say I have wobblies every now and then. So it's it's been really important to me to to just keep level headed about about things.
0: I think it's so so true. And it's a very important skill. Yeah, stoicism, resilience and you're right like on leaving number 10 you know i'm trying my hand at lots of different entrepreneurial things and it's hard you know sometimes people can see raises being made or doing well in podcast charts and think it's all easy but i you know there are definitely some moments where it's really hard and and anyone that is successful at anything people may may make it look like it's plain sailing but um it's so often not the case how to win friends and influence people is a great book and it's funny we are exploring doing a book club as part of the podcast series at some stage so we we should talk about that separately because it'd be great to get you on in maybe even in future in real life to do that um because as you say it, it is such a timeless classic that exists through the ages when you look at the area of host kitchens you have taken some big investment from hoxton ventures and balderton capital you know these are guys that have backed some of the best and biggest entrepreneurial stories in the United Kingdom, Hoxton famously backed Deliveroo early doors. Why do you think that the total addressable market is going to grow so much in this area?
1: A couple of things. The total addressable market, if you think about just food delivery, is looking at it globally about a trillion dollars, according to Euro Monitor, And you know, that accelerated as a result of COVID to get to, you know, it was considered about 400 million before COVID. Now it's it's accelerated quite dramatically as a result. But I think in our particular case, what fascinated the um, the venture capitalists was the, the way that we approached the model was so asset light. So it's not a heavy investment. It was about working within a system that is so broken. So, you know, 60% of restaurants don't make it past their first year it's 80 percent of restaurants fail in their first five years
0: that is that is why i didn't pursue the fish and chip shop idea i want that's partly it
1: it's crazy and yet everybody i know knows those facts and says they want to open a restaurant because we all love food we all love dining and it seems like a great social experience and it wouldn't be great to own a restaurant and yet it's actually probably the worst investment that you can make don't get me wrong with you know some amazing success stories of which i've been lucky to be a part of, but it is a broken industry. And 90% of hotel kitchens are underutilized. You know, 70% of restaurant kitchens are underutilized. There's probably 16 to 20 million kitchens in the world, of which, you know, 70% of them are underutilized. So there's an enormous opportunity to transform kitchens. And, and look, 70% of restaurants are independent, right? So they don't have the, the money or the privilege to acquire, like McDonald's can go and acquire a data analytics company for $300 million uh, and have superpowers, but the independent world doesn't have that. So it's been such an archaic industry that hasn't been impacted by technology, really hasn't changed since the days of the founding of McDonald's. And so there's a real opportunity to transform, you know, millions of kitchens around the world to become optimised more efficient, to have the ability to make better decisions because the world is run not by oil now, by data. And so we've created a platform that doesn't mean you need to go invest millions into building restaurants or kitchens, but it just works with those kitchens because we don't want to lose the independent restaurants. We don't want a world that just has the big QSR junk food players. We love the independence. That's what makes our high street so enjoyable. And so what we wanted to do is build a model that enables that those kinds of operators to continue existing, but gives them the technology, the support, the training, the data to actually get a layer of revenue above what they have. And the food delivery has accelerated. It was, just, it was just on its growth trajectory anyway. So it's here to stay. And so I think for those reasons, the VC community has really seen an opportunity. And for me personally, I think you know we're so much focused around how can we make sustainability at the core of what we do. And one of the things that we're very focused on is if we're in thousands and thousands of kitchens, can we transform those kitchens to produce and then deliver you know, more plant-based food in a more sustainable way, in a more efficient way? So, so that's kind of what's driving us at Box as we go through our growth phase. And I know, ironically, we started as, as chicken, but it is my aim to have every brand on our platform at least 50% plant-based and all our packaging to be you know, biodegradable and recyclable. Um, and we're working towards that.
0: That's incredibly exciting. Where did the name K-Box come from?
1: So when I was talking to customers about uh, what we were doing, and we were still absurd bird at the time, and, and we were just beginning to, to move into this, I kept saying, think of it like a kitchen in the box. I'm giving you a kitchen in the box. And it just get, it, it felt so long to say kitchen in the box that I, I shortened it to K-Box and it kind of stuck. Ah,
0: Obvious when you say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so often it is. That's why one of the many reasons I'm not a branding expert, which if you listen to the trailers of this show, you'll realize that Jimmy's jobs wasn't the first name of it. Um the final two questions I'm gonna ask you at the at the same time, um, partly because I'm gonna be intrigued to see which you answer first. So, firstly, as a pioneer in the food and beverage space, what is your favorite takeaway? And secondly, What If you were to pass the mic to another entrepreneur who perhaps hasn't had as much coverage yet, who would you say that we should get on the next series or the next couple of series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future?
1: I'll definitely answer the latter first. I I think Kelly Fairbrother, who's um, the co-founder of a company called ZigZag, spelled with two X's as opposed to Z. she's basically democratizing. And I think this is something that's interesting for you access to audiobooks and trying to revolutionize the experience. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I'd love to be able to combine reading an e book uh, with when I'm walking, listening to the audiobook version. Right now, it's really hard to do that unless you pay for two subscriptions, and then you have to get involved with all sorts of inflexible models and and signings, etc. So she's just signed up some massive publishers. And she's about to raise her her first round of funding. And I think she's a phenomenal founder. And I always want to back other female founders. So that's one I would suggest that you definitely keep an eye on.
0: That sounds great. That is a real, I really struggle with that as well, because I enjoy reading books and listening to them. But you're right, trying to do. A, you have to pay for it twice, which always slightly grates on me and my sort of Midland and Northerner background that I have to do that. And it's you said as you say, it's such an unseamless process as well to do it. It would be yeah, that sounds really exciting. And as we always try strive for a 50-50 gender split on this uh, on this show. So she sounds great.
1: Yeah, no, she's brilliant. So, I mean, obviously I'm gonna say absurd birds, but if I'm gonna not <laughs> talk about my own brand, uh, I would say, look, I'm a big sushi fanatic. Uh, and the one thing that I missed during lockdown was ability to go to, to get my favorite sushi, um, which they started delivering um during lockdown. So dinings in Southwest in Knightsbridge is actually my favorite. Uh, and they do a very good do- job on delivery as well. So I'd vote for them.
0: Terrific. Well, that could be an inspired takeaway for many people because I'm sure we've all fallen into the trap of, of going to the old favourites, having all taken so many more deliveries. So it has been fantastic to have you on, uh, Salima. I would love to do this in person later in the year. We're exploring live events and to get you back on and continue to hear how your story goes because it's so interesting and so inspiring.
1: I'd love it. No, I'd appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks as always for listening. This is the last episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future for Series 2. We'll be back next month with a truly amazing lineup of guests such as Ben Francis from Gymshark. In the meantime, I wanted to recommend another podcast series that I thoroughly enjoy. It is called Crisis, What Crisis? And it talks about how leaders in lots of different fields, whether sports or business, deal with crises when they arrive. Now, it's fair to say the host, Andy Coulson, knows a fair bit about crises. I know we have some younger listeners. So for those of you that don't know, Andy was editor of the News of the World, which was the biggest selling newspaper in Britain. He was also the director of communications for David Cameron in Downing Street. And he faced his own personal crisis when he served at Her Majesty's Pleasure in Belmarsh Prison. I'd recommend the interviews with Martha Lane Fox, the co-founder of LastMinute.com, and Richard Bacon, the TV presenter. Also, the interview with Andy himself is worth checking out. To understand a bit more of what he is up to. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts, and it's called Crisis. What crisis? Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes that would be great. And of course we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills, and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.